Good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning, and we are glad that you have come to join us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them out. Turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. If you've been with us uh, at all this year, you'll know that we have been journeying through the book of Genesis. And um, this morning, as we come to chapter 37, we actually begin the final movement of the book. Um, And we will see that the focus of what Moses has given to us in the book of Genesis now turns uh, his, he turns his attention primarily uh, to the life of a man named Joseph. And it should be noted as we uh, embark upon this, this final journey in this, the last 14 chapters that uh, more is written about the life of Joseph than about the other patriarchs that we've studied thus far. More is written about Joseph than, than about his father Jacob or his grandfather Isaac or even his great-grandfather Abraham. And the sheer volume as well as the intriguing nature of Joseph's story has made it one of the most well-known and beloved uh, biographies of the Old Testament. Not only permeating uh, Sunday school lessons and small group Bible studies and with, with church groups, but it's, this story has also made its way into pop culture. Many of you will remember the, uh, the, the, the depiction of this life entitled Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Joseph's story is a fascinating read. Chuck Swindoll in his, uh, his devotional biography of Joseph states that perhaps no life in the Bible reads more like a suspenseful and compelling novel than Joseph's. And another has put it this way. says, Joseph's story is a finely wrought and self-contained novella describing in vivid detail the development of his character from a charismatic youth to compassionate middle age. His is a riches-to-rags-to-riches tale replete with every human passion. Love and hate, ambition and glory, jealousy and fury, tears of joy and grief are shed, garments are rent in anguish. It's a gripping saga of treachery and deception, betrayal and forgiveness. Now, I shared this with those who were in our Wednesday night Bible study this last week. Um, I've had to do a lot of chewing and a lot of um, grinding, we might say, as I have struggled with this final section in the book of Genesis. I've struggled with it and, and chewed on it and grinded with it an attempt to try to understand what specifically the Lord would reveal to us through these final chapters. Um, and, and what I have come to, to be convinced of as I have read and as I have studied this final section is that Genesis is actually more, excuse me, it's, it's actually less about the life of Joseph. And it's much, much more about God. And, and stick with me for a second. If, if this final section is actually really less about Joseph and really much more about God, then it's also less 
about how we can take the lessons that we learn from Joseph's life and apply them to our own lives so that we can stay out of the pits and so that we can rise above our less than desirable circumstances. It's less about that. And it's more about a picture of, of God, about how he works through our less than desirable circumstances in order to fulfill his promises, in order to bring about our redemption, in order to display his glory. Now, it's going to take me the rest of our study in Genesis to fill in the gaps, to, to, to really prove to you that I believe that that's what Moses and what the Holy Spirit would have us to understand from this final section. But I at least want to offer you a couple of thoughts on the front end for your consideration, thoughts that I hope will substantiate my conviction. First of all, we cannot fully appreciate this final section of Genesis unless we recognize how it fits in with all the rest of the book of Genesis, particularly the very first part of Genesis. You'll recall that the first two chapters of Genesis tell us about how the sovereign God of heaven created the world and everything in it and declared that it was good. He created both Adam and Eve. He placed them in the Garden of Eden. He gave them rain over everything that grew there except for one tree, one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And by God's command, he said they were not to eat of that tree. But then in chapter 3, we read that Satan came along in the form of a serpent whose deceptive lies caused Eve to believe that if she were to actually eat of that tree, then she would become as God. She would become like him. And so she ate of that forbidden fruit. She then also gave it to Adam, who also then willfully disobeyed God's command and ate of it. And as a result, we recognize that all of humanity was plunged into the chaos of darkness of sin. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God's judgment was passed upon the serpent who deceived Eve. And God tells him, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promised that Satan's ultimate demise would come by way of the promised seed crushing his head. And I want you to know from that point forward throughout the rest of Genesis, what we read about is how the promised seed would actually come into existence. Who that promised seed would be. It actually traces the line of the promised seed who would not only come and crush the head of the serpent, but would also come and redeem all of humanity that was lost as a result of sin. In fact, it is the promised seed that God refers to when later in Genesis he speaks to Abraham and tells him that through his family all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was a, a promise, a prediction of the coming of the promised seed. And so what we learn is that through Abraham's offspring, through Isaac, and then through Jacob, and then, excuse me, and through Isaac and then through Jacob, and then also we will learn through, through Jacob's fourth-born son, Judah, the promised seed will actually come. 
But God also tells Abraham something else that's interesting that we should not miss. In Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 13, he tells Abraham this. He says, listen, you need to know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Then in verse 16 he says, in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, that is back to Canaan, back to the promised land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fulfillment. So from what, from what God tells Abraham, we realize that his plan, his ultimate plan of man's redemption is a plan that will take time to fully develop. It's not going to be something that's instantaneous. In fact, it is a plan that will involve 400 years of slavery and mistreatment in the land of Egypt. But as we come to chapter 37 and as we have been studying through Genesis so far, we realize that the the line of the promised seed, Israel's children, they still reside in Canaan. They're not, they have not made their way to Egypt yet. And so what we become aware of is that with the story of Joseph, we find out exactly how God moved the children of Israel to Egypt just as he promised and said that he would. And we will also find out why that move was necessary in order to preserve the line of the promised seed. The last thought that I offer you is proof of why this last section of Genesis is actually more about God than it is about the life of Joseph is because of something that Joseph says to his brothers on two different occasions after his brothers finally recognize who he is and they realize that he has become second in command of the most powerful nation on earth at that time, the nation of Egypt. And it's also after that that they realize what they had done to him back when he was just a 17-year-old kid by throwing him into a pit and selling him to some Midianite traders who were going to Egypt. Once they realized that, they were pretty scared. Joseph says to them, however, in Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8, he says, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God sent me here before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Those were from the words of Joseph's own lips. And then probably the most famous words come in chapter 50, verse 20, where he says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Once again, Joseph declared that everything that happened to him was all a part of God's sovereign plan. It was a, a plan that according to the scriptures had been in place since even before the foundation of the earth. It was a plan that had been revealed in Genesis 3 verse 15. It was a plan that would ultimately bring about redemption. It would bring about the salvation of sinners just like you and just like me. So that's why I say to you that I believe this last section of Genesis is really more about the glory of God than it is about the life 
of Joseph. And there is one final thing that I want to say by way of introduction this morning, and that is as we move into these chapters, we will see again and again and again how the life of Joseph ultimately points us to Jesus. In many ways, the parallels are unmistakable. And since that is the case, therefore, it is incumbent upon us not to exalt and glorify Joseph, but rather to exalt and glorify and worship and place our faith in the one to whom Joseph's life ultimately points, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, admittedly, that was a rather long introduction to our text this morning. Let's actually read the text. I'm actually going to, we, we, I've entitled today's sermon, Meeting Joseph. So we're going to be introduced to him today. We're not going to get to everything here, but I want us to read down from verse 1 of chapter 37 down through verse 18. It'll set the stage for us this morning. So read with me there. Beginning in verse 1, we see, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. And he, so he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is the dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he, sent, then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field and asked him saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. 
Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness and we're grateful for the opportunity that you have given each of us to be assembled here together today to be able to open your word that you have ultimately authored. And that word is, is, is word that speaks life to us. It's a word that introduces us to great and grand promises that you have made to, to folks like us who are sinners and who are far off from you. But you've promised that all who will humble themselves before you, you will in no wise cast out. So as we read this today, we've got to recognize exactly what it tells us about ourselves, what it tells us about you, what it tells us about our salvation. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand that. And I pray for those that may be here who are afar off, who have never humbled themselves before you, that today they would recognize that you're a God who loves them, a God who's reaching out to them, a God who sends your spirit to speak to them, and I pray for conviction. And I pray for repentance. And I pray for hearts that would be humbled before you. And ultimately, I pray for your glory. That your glory might shine forth in our lives, in how we live in the private, of our, private parts of our lives and how we live in the public parts of our lives. That your glory would shine forth. Father, that others would be drawn to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage introduces us to this young teenager, 17 years of age, named Joseph. And, and in it, we're given really a number of pieces of information that sort of set the stage for what's going to happen to him. And... and I think we should look at that information that's given to us from a few different perspectives. In fact, that's kind of how I've I put together your outline this morning. Uh, how we can understand what happens here from a couple, three different perspectives. And, and so notice the first perspective that I've given you there. It's, it's the first point on your outline. It's the special love of his father. We need to look at things from the perspective of the special love of his father. Moses clearly tells us in verse 3... That Israel, and that is the name God has given to Jacob, that, that Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Now, let's just go ahead and ask the right question up front. Is that right? Is, is, is that good? I mean, is that something that other parents ought to seek to emulate and how they raise and, and take care of their own children? I mean, I think we can all agree that no, the Bible is not presenting this in some way as a prescriptive way. He's not saying that this is how parents ought to treat their various children, that they ought to pick one out and set their special love upon that child and, 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 and love him more than they love the others. In fact, I think in light of how Jacob's own father, Isaac, loved Jacob's brother Esau more than he did Jacob, well, you would you would think that the pain and the difficulty that such preferential treatment actually caused Jacob would have caused him not to repeat the same mistake. And nevertheless, we read that Joseph was his favorite. So Moses is not defending Israel here. He is just simply presenting us with the facts. Jacob loved Joseph best, and he loved him more than all of his other children. Now, we might ask, why? Why was that the case? Well, it tells us in verse 3 why Joseph was his favorite. It says, because he was the son of Jacob's old age. 
Now, what this language alludes to is, as Ken Matthews has written, is the fact that Rachel, and if you'll remember, Rachel was, was Jacob's specially loved and favored wife. Rachel was the one that, that he set his heart upon and his affection upon and worked for seven years for Laban in order to have her hand in marriage. And then when Laban deceived him and actually gave him Leah instead of Rachel, he willingly worked another seven years so that he could have her hand in marriage. Rachel was the love of Jacob's life and she was barren all the way up until she was older. And then God finally blessed her with a son named Joseph. And so when it says here that Joseph was his favorite because he was the son of Jacob's old age. We recognize that Joseph represented the special love that he had for Rachel. Verse 3 reveals the special love that Israel had for Joseph. It tells us why Joseph was the object of Israel's special love. And then notice it also tells us the way in which that special love was demonstrated. Israel made Joseph a tunic or a robe of many colors. Much has been written about Joseph's robe or his coat of many colors. It's one of the elements of this story that people probably remember more than just about all the others. Many Hebrew scholars point out that the robe's distinctiveness was likely not so much the color scheme of it, though that may have partially been part of it, but it was the fact that this, this robe likely had sleeves that came all the way down to the hands and that its, its hemline would have gone all the way down to the ankles. That was a distinctiveness of robes that were very ornamental at that time, and they signified royalty. They signified a chosenness. In fact, that same word to describe the robe that's used here is also used in 2 Samuel chapter 13 to describe a tunic that was worn by the princess of a king. It was a royal kind of ornamental, perhaps very multicolored, very distinctive ornamental robe. Joseph had this coat made and given, excuse me, Israel had it made and given to Joseph. And it was a clear sign to everyone, especially Joseph's brothers, that Joseph was dad's favorite. He was the regal one. He was the one that all the blessings and all the... He was the one that got away with everything. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for those of you who had siblings. If you were the one that got away with everything or if you were the one always grumbling about the other one that got away with everything. I can tell you that when I was growing up, my brother thought I got away with everything. And he might have been right. I don't know. Here's the point. The point of this text is not saying that such special treatment is right or even wise. In fact, I think Jacob put his son in a terrible predicament, as we will see. In fact, that's the next perspective we ought to look at this text from. The second point you'll see on your outline is the jealous hatred of his brothers. He may have enjoyed the special love of his father, but he endured the, the, the jealous hatred of his brothers. Keep everything that we've just learned from verse 3 in mind, and then look back with me at verse 2. Even before we learn about his father's favoritism and this richly ornamented robe, we learn that Joseph was not well liked by his older brothers. We read that Joseph was out tending or pasturing his father's flock along with his brothers who had, 
who had been born to Bilhah and to Zilpah, his father's concubine wives. So Joseph was out there with Dan and, and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. That's who he was out there taking care of the sheep with. And Moses tells us that he brought a bad report of those brothers back to his father. Now, right here, this is where Joseph tends to get a bad rap. This is where many people begin to call him a tattletale and a snitch and a talebearer. Some, some scholars even go so far as to propose that the, that the term bad report used there in verse 2 that Joseph brought back to his father uh, is a report that may not have been entirely true. It may have been slanted more to his advantage and less toward the advantage of his brothers. That's, that's what they say. Quite frankly, I hesitate to go that far. And the reason that I hesitate to go that far is because Moses hesitates to go that far. Moses doesn't tell us that. Moses doesn't ascribe motive here. He simply is giving us facts. Is that possible? Sure, it's possible, but I'm, I'm not ready to actually state that that's exactly the way it was. And, and, and remember, let's, let's think about this for a second. In light of what we've already learned about Jacob's other sons, they, they had a tendency to get involved in some shenanigans. Remember Simeon and Levi? They slaughtered all of the men of Shechem. You remember what we just read that Reuben did with his father's concubine wife, Bilhah. He went in and slept with her. We're already aware of the propensity that Jacob's sons had for trouble. Furthermore, if as many suggest that this robe that Jacob gave Joseph signified royalty and, and authority, then Joseph's robe was likely that of supervising his own brothers. He was likely the one that, that Jacob had said, look, he may be the youngest, but he's in charge and his robe is there to prove it. And so as he was there looking and seeing what was going on, he simply reported back to his father what he saw and it was a bad report. We see that later down in verse 15 when Joseph is sent on a mission to check on not only his flock, but also his brothers when they were pasturing in Shechem. So Consider this, Joseph is the next to the youngest son of Jacob. He is significantly younger than all of his older brothers. Yet he appears to be given the responsibility of supervising them as they tend their father's flock. He likely doesn't have the physical ability or the influence to force his brothers into behaving or doing as they should, but he can still go tell his dad. And that would have been his responsibility to do. And if that had been assigned to him by his father, he was duty-bound to do it. Again, we can argue that such a job assignment put, put Joseph in a very awkward and terrible predicament with his brothers, but that's not something that Joseph had any control over. Their responsi the responsibility lay with his fathers. Nevertheless, you can imagine just how odious he would have become to his older brothers. I hate that kid. Look at him with that robe on God. You can just hear it. As a matter of fact, it's repeated again and again and again throughout this text how much they hated their brother. All of, I believe, Israel's ill-advised special treatment of Joseph along with Joseph's assigned supervisory role likely signified by that robe caused his brothers to hate him even more. And according to verse 4, Moses tells us that they hate him so much that they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. 
They, just, they, it, they probably ignored him, and then when they did have to speak to him, it was probably laced with all kinds of diatribe that none of us would want to repeat. So there's this bad report, there's this multicolored tunic, and then we read about these dreams. Man, these dreams. You want to say, Joseph, dude, be quiet. Don't tell everything that you know. Joseph has two dreams. In the first, all the brothers were binding sheaves in the field, and then his sheaf rises up, and all the brothers' sheaves bow down to him. The second dream is like the first, only the setting is now moves from the field, it moves to the heavens. And there are 11 stars that represent his brothers, along with the sun and the moon, which are representative of his parents. They all bow down to him. I'm going to come back to those dreams in just a moment and talk about what they mean, but it really is not all that hard to interpret them, right? I mean, the brothers got it right up front. They didn't have have to have anybody to interpret what those dreams meant. Verse 8, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? They didn't need an interpreter. They knew exactly what that dream meant. And then later, it says down there, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph's brothers weren't the only ones that understood it. His father also understood it. In verse 10, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers all come and bow down to the earth before you? Notice once again, verse 11, Joseph's brothers envied him. They were jealous of him. According to verse 4, they were jealous of him because of how much their father loved him. More than, they did, more than he did them. They hated him because of his dreams in verse 5. And they, that was repeated again in verse 8. They hated him even more. So this is how Moses introduces us to Joseph. There are two sets of lenses, two perspectives that we've got to keep sort of holding out there in our minds. Number one, we understand that he is a young man, 17 years of age, who is specially loved by his father and he is jealously hated. By his brothers. In fact, Joseph is so hated by his brothers that as we read down in verse 18, when he came to them out in the fields of Dothan, they conspired against him to kill him. Now, admittedly, this is an ominous introduction to say the least. Things don't look good for Joseph. In fact, we know what happens. We know his brothers throw him in a pit. We know that they would have killed him except for the intervention of his eldest brother, Reuben. We know that he is ultimately sold into slavery to some passing migrant traders on their way to Egypt. And the brothers concoct a way to deceive their father into thinking that he has been killed by a wild beast. And Lord willing, we're going to come back to that part of the story next time. But for the moment, I want, us to, I want to simply point out something to you that may not have been quite so evident in this text. I want us to take into account the final perspective that I think we need to keep in our minds when we read this. The third point on your outline is this. It is the providential care of God. The providential care of God. You see, the special love of Joseph by his father is very evident. And, And the vitriolic hate of his brothers is also clearly evident. But the providential hand of God may not appear quite so apparent to us. In fact, if, if you search through this chapter, if you, if you go back and you read every verse in chapter 37, you will not find God's name mentioned once. Not, he's not even referred to. So, so how can I make the statement that God's providence, that His special sovereign oversight of the events that we see unfold in front of us, events that that quite honestly are tragic 
and terrible events. How can I say that Joseph is the beneficiary of God's providential care? Well, the first thing that I would point you back to are those dreams that Joseph had. The truth is, all of us have dreams. Sometimes we remember them. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes I've been sitting at the table, at the breakfast table with my kids, and they started telling me some of the dreams that they had the night before, and I'm just amazed. It's, what in the world were you eating the night before? <laughs> what, what were you watching on TV? I don't know. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. All of us have probably had dreams like that. Sometimes they're, they're outlandish and crazy. Sometimes they're a little more realistic. Um, but even though we laugh sometimes at the dreams, there was no one laughing at the dreams that Joseph was having. Notice also that they came in a pair, and that's important. They came, they came in a pair, both of which were interpreted to mean the exact same thing that Joseph would eventually be in a position of authority and power over the others in his family. Interestingly enough, dreams become a major motif in this story. As we work our way through this text, there will be more dreams that will come about. Not necessarily dreams that Joseph had, but dreams that others have that Joseph is given the ability by God to interpret. The first set comes in chapter 40 when we, when we find about the baker and the cupbearer of, of Pharaoh who both are in jail with Joseph at the time, and they both have a dream, and Joseph is able to interpret those two dreams for those individual guys. But then in chapter 41, we see another set of dreams. And in chapter 41, we read that Pharaoh has two dreams. And at that point, Joseph is brought in to be able to, to um, interpret those dreams for Pharaoh, and Joseph makes a very interesting statement in chapter 41 that helps us understand things back here in chapter 37. While interpreting Pharaoh's dreams for him, Joseph tells Pharaoh that not only were his two dreams really the same dream, but then he says the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. The ESV translates it this way. He says the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is Fixed by God. Why is that important? Well, you notice that the same thing can be said of the dreams that Joseph had back here in chapter 37. He had two of them. And the doubling of those dreams meant that that which he dreamed about was going to be fixed by God and would come about in short order. Therefore, based on Joseph's dreams, we can determine that God had decreed that Joseph would rise to a position of authority and that his brothers and his family would all bow down to him. In fact, though, though they do not recognize their brother at the time as being their brother, Moses records for us that Joseph's brothers bow down to him multiple times while he serves as Pharaoh's governor in Egypt. But I would submit to you that while we have the benefit of understanding that from hindsight, there was no obvious guarantee of that for Joseph when he was 17 years old. In fact, when Israel sends his favored son away to go and to see about his brothers and about the flocks in Shechem, neither of them, neither father nor son, realizes that Joseph is leaving home for the last time. Furthermore, when Joseph is bought by those Midianite traders and taken out of the land of Canaan, that's the last time 
he will ever be alive in the promised land. At the time, you see, in the middle of the events, while it was still occurring and while they were going on, I'm sure that Joseph experienced fear and I'm sure he experienced anger and even doubt. He probably had moments when he wondered where God was and if God really cared. Moses doesn't tell us about any of those times, but he, he really doesn't have to, does he? After all, you and I are familiar with all those emotions. We're familiar with all those questions. And here's what I want you to know. It's right here where all that chewing and all that grinding and all that wrestling with this text and the purpose of this story has really come back home to roost with me. Because you see, what we find out about this story of Joseph is not how we can avoid the pit. What we read about here is not about how we can how we can overcome the hardships of life. What we read about here is not how God can divinely take all of our lemons and turn them into lemonade. That's not what this text is about. Rather, this is a story that reminds us that the sovereign God of heaven is at work in our lives. He's often at work behind the scenes, out of sight where we don't actually recognize him, but he is still at work nevertheless. And he's using all of the events of our lives, some of which are unimaginably difficult and dark, to bring about hope out of hopelessness and to bring about light out of darkness and to bring about order out of chaos. In these opening verses of chapter 37, Moses introduces us and we meet Joseph, but we must not lose sight of the primary character in this narrative, and the one who is absolutely, whose, whose critical nature and role in our lives, just as it is in Joseph's, just as it is in ours, is to bring about our good and his glory. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Though his hand may seem hidden and our circumstances dire, God's fingerprints are everywhere bringing about our ultimate good through his perfect will. Many have noted that that overarching banner that flies over this entire Joseph narrative is what we read earlier. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. You, you don't be mad at yourself, brothers, because you wanted to sell me, and, but God intended to bring me here so that I could preserve your lives. And it reminds us of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 28. We all know that. Sometimes it's thrown around like, like it's the answer to everything. But I want you to know it's no less true. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, though his hand may seem hidden and our circumstances dire, God's fingerprints are everywhere. And they are working to bring about our ultimate good through his perfect will. And we might wonder, how does God do something like that? How can he do something like that? 
How can he take the terrible and the tragic events like what we know happened to Joseph and like what many of us have experienced and perhaps are even experiencing right now? How can he use something so hurtful and so painful for his glory and for our good? Well, as we come to a close this morning, I wonder, I wonder if as we looked at Joseph's story, if you noticed an echo of an even greater story. A foreshadowing of a one who would come on a mission to do exactly what we described. One who would come to bring hope out of hopelessness and light out of darkness and order out of chaos. You see, Joseph's life ultimately points us to Jesus. Just as Joseph was rejected by his brethren and he was humiliated by slavery and imprisonment, so we read that Israel's greater son, Jesus Christ, was also rejected by his brethren. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The Jewish leaders and his own people rejected Jesus and called for him to be crucified on a Roman cross between criminals. And furthermore, as we'll read in Joseph's story, through his suffering, Israel and his sons were spared from the ravages of a severe famine. So also through the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ will those who place their trust in him be spared from the eternal ravages of the wrath of God. And what that tells us is that Jesus Christ is the promised seed. He is the seed that Genesis 3.15 says would come. He is the one who by his death and by his resurrection crushed the head of the serpent. He is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. And he is the one who offered us life and grace through his mercy. God's word calls every man, woman, boy, and girl to place their faith in Jesus to trust in Him, to be our only hope for our salvation and our redemption. And when we do that, if we can trust Him to save us, then brothers and sisters, we can be confident that He can work out all of the details of our lives, even the very things that we may not be able to understand or even appreciate. He will work out even those things for our good and for His glory. The question is, have you trusted in Christ to save you? And if you have, are you trusting in him right now in the middle of the circumstances in which you find yourself? I pray that you will. I pray that you will because, brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.